Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, I would guess if you were a listener and you were listening to our show religiously every week without fail, never missing an episode, as I'm sure every single one of our listeners does. I'm sure there are many of them doing that. I'm sure, right? Yeah. You would probably at some point say, man, I wish I could pick a movie for them to talk about, right? Well, that's what I feel every week. Well, there you go. See? (laughs) So I think it's time that we give our viewers or our listeners a chance to do that exact thing. What do you think? The more listener interaction we get, the better, I say. I agree. So what you can do, dear listeners, is swing on over to iTunes, click on that little five-star review thing, or or less stars if you want to, but we prefer five, uh, and, and leave us a review. And if you do that and you send us in an email about it, and I'll give you all the details in just a minute, you can win the chance to give us a movie to talk about in the show. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to give two prizes for this, basically. So one person, one per- we're going to pick for the best or most creative review. And I don't mean best review like the most glowing review. I mean like the most creative, the funniest, the most unique way of writing something cool about our show. And then we're also going to draw one person's name at random. And each of you will be able to pick a movie or a mini feature idea for, for us to use as our mini feature. So let's say, for example, you You've always wanted to hear our thoughts on, um, I don't know, Gleaming the Cube, the the 1980s skateboarding movie with Christian (laughs) Slater, uh, you know, or you want to hear us discuss in depth our thoughts on, you know, the fourth direct-to-video Starship Troopers sequel, well, now is your chance. We're going to make a mini-feature out of your movie, and we're going to both watch the film that you pick, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to have fun sharing our thoughts and opinions on it in that inimitable Phil and Mike style. How does that sound, Phil? It sounds great. Or it could be an absolute nightmare, depending upon the films that get chosen. (laughs) And I'm sure some people will put films deliberately for us to do that, but we will talk about them in some way. Yeah, it could be... It could be, you know, the, the worst movie ever made. It could be the best movie ever made. It could be, you know, Jupiter Ascending or, you know, it could be uh, <laughs> Citizen Kane. Whatever it is, it's a movie that you love that you want to hear us talk about. This is your chance. So what you got to do, swing over to iTunes, leave us a review, take a screen cap of that review and send it to us at our email address, which is after the ending at Verizon.net. Like I said, we're going to pick one winner uh, for the most creative, most interesting review, and then we will draw one person's name at random. So even if you just write, you know, I love this podcast and give us some stars, you still have a chance to win. Then we will draw the two winners. We're going to run the contest through the end of the year, draw two winners, and uh, you guys will be able to tell us what you want to hear us talk about. How's that sound? And let us know your Twitter handle as well so we can give that a shout out so people can then look you up and say good pick, bad pick, whatever. Exactly. So we'll have some fun with it. So swing over to iTunes and leave those reviews, please. It really does help us out, uh, helps us grow. And I know you all want to see us get a bigger audience so that we can uh, become world famous and, and take over the podcasting world or something like that. Yeah, that's that's the plan. That's uh, that's our five-point plan. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to work right. on the other three points. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're getting there. One yeah. point at a time. Yeah. 
All right, so Phil, moving on to our regularly scheduled programming then, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them in this very episode? Well, we'll be going after the ending of the, uh, Christopher Nolan's The Prestige and also the wonderful 1980s film Flash Gordon. And we'll be looking at our top 10 films of the year 1994. And in our Mighty Morphin mini feature, we will be having some interviews from the cast and creative people of Guillermo del Toro's Troll Hunters animated show, which is hitting Netflix this December. That's right. And we got some really cool people. We're talking to Guillermo del Toro himself, uh, Ron Perlman, uh, Stephen Yun from The Walking Dead, who played Glenn, and uh, uh, somebody you might be familiar with also by the name of Kelsey Grammer, who uh, is best known for playing uh, Frasier in a couple mm. of TV sh- series. So uh, some really cool people that I had the chance to talk to recently about this, uh, this really fun show. So uh, lots to get to. So why don't we jump into things then, Phil? Yes, let's crack on. Do you want to run through the prestige for us? So spoilers I, ahead. Yes, yes. As always, we are going to spoil the crap out of this movie. Lots of twists and turns in this one. I'm going to give them all away. So if you have not seen it yet, please go watch it or skip ahead to Flash Gordon, uh, which will be coming up shortly. So the prestige 2006 film directed by Christopher Nolan, written by Nolan, along with his brother, Jonathan Nolan. And it stars Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Piper Perabu, Rebecca Hall, Scarlett Johansson, the late David Bowie, and Andy Serkis. That's a hell of a cast, isn't it? It is indeed a hell of a cast. I yeah. agree. Now, this one's a little complex, so I, I tried <laughs> to keep my synopsis yeah. as short as I could. But it's, it's you know, hang in there with me because I got to get through it all. Yeah. All right. It's early 1900s London. Magician Robert Angier, played by Hugh Jackman, performs his magic trick, The Real Transported Man, to a packed house. Rival magician Alfred Borden, played by Christian Bale, watches in secret. At the climax of the trick, Borden sneaks backstage to see how Angier does it and watches as Angier drops through a trap door and lands in a tank of water where he drowns. Put on trial for Angier's murder, Borden is accused of pushing the tank under the trap door. In prison, Borden is visited by an agent for Lord Caldwell or Caldwell or however you pronounce his name, I forget. But he yeah, offers from to, the Lord. There you go. The Lord. Well, that sounds like an agent of the Lord, like, you know, yeah. he's an angel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am an agent for the Lord. Uh. <laughs> um, but he offers to take care of uh, Borden's daughter, his young daughter, in exchange for all of his tricks. We then flash back to the pair of magicians working as apprentices for Milton the Magician, along with trick builder John Cutter, played by Michael Caine, and assistant Stella, who is also Angier's wife. After a mishap where Borden accidentally causes Angier's wife to die, Angier grows to hate him. Borden launches a solo magic career and hires a mysterious silent associate named Fallon. The two magicians begin to sabotage each other's shows, resulting in blood and chaos. Angier steals Borden's transported man trick, where Borden instantly travels from one side of the stage to the other. They hire a double to act as Angier for the trick, but he doesn't like it because he ends up underneath the stage while his double basks in the applause. Uh, A lot more stuff happens, but basically we end up learning that Tesla is Borden's code word for the trick. So in America, Angier meets Nikola Tesla uh, and asks him to build the same machine he built for Borden. Tesla ends up having had nothing to do with Borden's trick, but he does create a machine that can duplicate living and inanimate matter. We then return to the opening scene of the film, with Angier drowning. Borden is convicted of his murder, so he surrenders all his tricks to Lord Caldlow, uh, and when he comes to visit... When the Lord comes to visit, I can't say it. It sounds like, you know. (laughs) Yeah, when the Lord. Right. When Lord C comes to visit, Borden realizes that it's actually Angier in disguise and he's still alive. But it's too late. Borden is hanged for his murder. 
Cutter, remember him? That's Michael Caine. Comes to yes. visit comes yes. to visit Lord C and discovers that it's Angier and that he framed Borden in revenge for Borden's indirectly killing his wife all those years ago. Cutter helps Angier dismantle his trick, only to discover that he was using the cloning machine to clone himself each time he performed the trick, and that a clone Angier would fall into a tank and drown every time the trick was performed. There are dozens of drowned Angier clones backstage. When Cutter leaves, Fallon, remember him? Yeah. He sneaks backstage and shoots Angier, and he reveals that he is Borden's twin brother, and they took <gasps> turns living as Borden while the other one was in disguise as Fallon so they could pull off the transported man trick. That's dedication to craft, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. <laughs> Angier dies from the gunshot wound, and Borden picks up young Jess, that would be Borden's daughter, and waves goodbye to Cutter, and we fade to black, and that is the prestige. Did you all get all that? You see why I said you had to see the movie? Because it doesn't even make sense when I explain it, but it makes sense when you watch the film. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, you, did, you summed it up quite nicely. Thank you. Because there's lots of toing and froing. It's basically about two guys working together and then just start ripping the crap out of each other. Yeah, yeah, basically. And then there's yeah. some magic and stuff like yeah. that. So, All right. So, Phil, why don't you kick things off then and take us through your day after. Okay. Day after. Cutter can't rest over recent events. The fact Angier was cloning himself with an electrical machine seems like something from the works of Jules Verne. The next day, Cutter returns to the theater and looks closely at the, the tanks with the various clones in. Many are in different states of decomposition, but he then begins to notice that there are differences. Some have scars or birthmarks, while others don't. One has a missing toe, another has a small tattoo. He realises that they are not clones at all, but lookalikes that Angie had recruited and then murdered for the sake of a trick and the fact he was all twisted by the way his, first, his wife died back in the day. And it's all to get revenge on Borden. It's only when he's about to, to leave that he realises that the body of Lord Caldo, or Angie, is nowhere to be seen. He doesn't see the figure behind him. He doesn't feel the knife slide into his chest. He dies not knowing what happened to him. Wow, I like it. That's that's pretty pretty interesting stuff. Thank you. So, in effect, one could say that you turned him into a serial killer. <gasps> yes, actually, I kill lots of lookalikes. Yeah, because it's just the whole thing with the film. You got this film about these two magicians doing illusions, tricking people, right? And then suddenly there's this super sci-fi cloning machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe Tesla just bought a load of black cats and hats and just you know, <laughs> right. them out here. So, okay, what about your day after? What happens What happens in your timeline? Okay, so in London, Angier waits for Borden to leave, then sits up and shakes his head. He's been studying the bullet-catching trick for years, but he'd never actually tried it before. Luckily, he was able to fool Borden and escape with his life. He calls for Cutter and tells him, we have to prepare. Meanwhile, Borden retires with Jess to a cottage in the country. A day or so later, there's a knock at the door. Borden opens it, and Jess looks up, then yells, Daddy, and runs to the door and hugs the man. It's the other Borden twin. He is a master magician, after all. Faking his own death and escaping <laughs> from a hangman's noose is child's play. Alfred Borden and his brother, Joseph Borden, who admittedly I was going to call Lizzie for a long time, Lizzie oh, Borden, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I decided against it. <laughs> so uh, Alfred and his brother, Joseph Borden, uh, they hug, and the three of them are together as a family for the first time in a long while. Oh, very nice. And that's my day after. Oh, that's a nice happy one. All right, so let's hear your immediate aftermath. I'm very intrigued to see where you're going with this. Okay, immediate aftermath for me. Borden takes Jess to France and he begins life anew. He still practices his magic tricks, but he starts working as a carpenter. And that's how he uh, makes money to, to live. He builds furniture and the like, but he also starts making intricate wooden puzzles and toys, which are a huge hit with the local children. Jess excels at school and they finally seem to have a normal life. Then one day, Jess comes back from school and says she has seen Lord Caldwell. And that's my immediate aftermath. I see. Well, that is uh, certainly very ominous. We'll have to see where that goes. 
Yes, we shall see. So what about your immediate <laughs> aftermath? All right. Well, Alfred, Joseph, and Jess move to America, where they take up with Harry Houdini, a promising young magician who's beginning to get a buzz around him. Alfred and Houdini become good friends, and they work on their tricks and illusions together. One day, when they're working on an escape trick, Houdini accidentally drowns. Alfred decides that the only move is to take his place. With a haircut and some subtle changes to his posture, he looks not dissimilar to Houdini. <laughs> and in this era, before the internet and television, most people don't know what Houdini looked like anyway. Borden propels himself as Houdini to new heights of fame and success, while Joseph once again takes on the role of his assistant and takes care of Jess. Meanwhile, Angier has been busy plotting his revenge. It takes him well over a decade, but he finally tracks the Bordens down in America. He and Cutter finally arrive at one of Houdini's performances, where he locks himself in a safe and is thrown off a bridge into icy waters in a river in New York. After five minutes pass, Angier is convinced Houdini is dead. But just then, Houdini emerges from the water, half frozen and half dead. Angier realizes he can get his revenge, but he stops short when he sees a young woman rush to Houdini's side. He realizes it's Borden's daughter, Jess, but he's struck by how much he reminds him of his late wife. He stops short and, seeing the father and daughter together, finds the anger drained from his body. Years of anger and hatred simply evaporate and Angier collapses. Cutter catches him and then takes him away to help him recuperate. And that's my immediate aftermath. I like that. I like that. I like that getting him into uh, him becoming Houdini. Yeah, I thought that could be fun. Yeah, nice that, yeah. I always had, I was, I was really was kind of a, I guess, a fan of Houdini, I guess you could say. Not like I ever saw him perform or anything, obviously, but I always was fascinated by him. And Oh, me know, too. Yeah, I've read a couple of books about him. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Likewise. All right, well, I want to see what happens, so don't keep us in suspense any longer. Give us your long term. Okay. Uh, Borden keeps thinking that he sees Caldwell or Angier, as they were one and the same. Things keep seeing him about town, but it's not possible. He killed him. Whenever he chases the figure, they disappear. One day, Jess doesn't make it back from school. And in a blind panic, Borden goes looking for her, but she's nowhere to be seen. He returns home only to find Angier there. He has Jess and is holding a knife to her throat. Borden tells Angier to remain calm and ask him what, asks him what he wants. The man responds, Angier, is that my name? Turns out Angier had no memory of who he was or what he did. It was a result of uh, the fight they had under the, uh, the theatre. His only memory was of Borden and how he had an intense hatred to towards him, but he didn't know why. Borden asks him to, to look at what he is doing and to let Jess go. Angier does so and then breaks down in tears. Borden makes sure Jess is safe and then calms Angier down. He forces his own anger and hatred towards Angier just into a dark place and just keeps it there and sits him down. Revenge and mistrust has done enough damage over the years. He pours them both a small glass of brandy and proceeds to tell Angier what exactly had happened between them. But he says that they began off as friends and maybe they could be again. And that's my long term. Oh, I like it. Thank you. Like it kind of came out of the dark and into the light there. Yeah, and I thought uh, losing his memory, you know, because it's Christopher Nolan and Memento and all that stuff. That's so right, exactly. I a thing to that. Yep, without a doubt. That, that memory definitely plays a strong part in Christopher Nolan films. So. Yeah, so. yeah, I thought I'd have a, a nice ending. I like it. Very nice. Okay, so what about yours? All right, well, Jess and Joseph try to convince Alfred that he needs to retire as Houdini after this latest near-death experience, but he refuses. He continues to take his Houdini persona to new heights of fame and success until 1926, when he dies from acute appendicitis. Jess and Joseph are well taken care of in Houdini's will, and they retire to the country where Joseph begins a career as a writer, and Jess meets a young country doctor and gets married. Joseph, always fascinated by the technology behind the magic tricks, begins writing under the pen name of Aldous Huxley, and his book Brave New World goes on to become a bestseller and a classic. Uh. Angier, meanwhile, finds himself adrift. His bloodlust for Borden is gone, and he's lost any desire to perform magic. 
He finally settles down in a small town and takes a job as a history teacher. Many years later, he falls in love with one of his former students, and although she's some 30 years his junior, they marry. In 1956, his wife gives birth to a son, who would be Angier's only child. Angier names him after his first wife's favorite book, a story by Charles Dickens, a story called David Copperfield. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. I like it. Thank you. And that is uh, that is my long term. And, and all those dates for anybody out there who wants to, to, to double check me are correct. So. Oh, you've done your research. I had to make sure I could make the math work. You know, I get a little, I get a little uh, obsessive about that stuff sometimes. So I was like, yeah, well, yeah, Houdini yeah. died in 26. Uh, David Copperfield was born in 56. I checked those out. So I had to make sure I could make it work. But I figure, you know, older men can have children with younger women. So I figured yes, that, yes, that yes. worked. So, uh, so there we go. I like it. Thank you. Some nice ones. All right. So that is the prestige. How about, Phil, do you have any prestigious trivia for us? <laughs> I certainly do. Uh, the main characters in the films, their initials spell Abra, with Alfred Borden, Robert uh. Rangier, as an abracadabra. Yeah, I like that one. I like that. Uh, in the bullet catch scene, you can see the name Harry Dresden on the list of performers. And Dresden is a fictional wizard in the book, The Dresden File Novels by Jim Butcher. Yep, yep. Uh, Borden's infant is played by one of Christopher Nolan's children. Huh. And there was uh, Chung Ling Su, who was a stage character created by a Caucasian-American man, William Ellsworth Robinson. When Andy Serkis' character is first introduced, he makes a reference to a magic trick where he, he had to guess the item in a person's pocket, which is the exact same trick that fooled Gollum in The Hobbit. Ah, yes. That's a neat little, neat yes. little tie in there. I like it. Yeah, Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall also appeared together in Vicky Cristina Barcelona in 2008, and they also joined Marvel... Uh, and debuted in an Iron Man movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think it was Iron Man 2 for Scott Johansson, Iron Man 3 for Rebecca Hall. That is correct. Very cool. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So their careers yeah. are somewhat intertwined in a, yes, in a small yes. tangential way. Yes, but that's uh, the prestige. All right. Very nice. Okay, well, why don't we move on then to Flash Gordon. I was waiting Flash. for it. <laughs> ah. Yes, Flash Gordon, uh, the 1980 film directed by Mike Hodges and starring Sam J. Jones, Melody Anderson, Max von Sydow, Topol, Timothy Dalton, Brian Blessed, and uh, lots of other people. And it's all a lot of glitzy camp fun. Yes, yes, it's probably is. the best way to describe it. Uh, so we have Ming the Merciless, played by Max von Sydow, declares war on Earth and unleashes natural and unnatural disasters. Flash Gordon, which is Sam J. Jones, and Dale Arden, who's a journalist, played by Melody Anderson. On a plane which crashes at Dr. Han Zarkov's lab. He's played by Topol. Uh, Zarkov believes the attacks originate off planet and tricks Flash and Dale onto a spacecraft, as you do. It's, uh, he'd built it, and they end up on the planet Mongo where they are captured by Ming's soldiers. Uh, Zarkov is brainwashed, Dale is prepared for Ming's pleasure, and Flash is to be executed. However, he is rescued by Ming's daughter, Princess Aura, played by Ornella Muti, and she takes him to Arborea. Which Andorra's lover, Prince Baron, played by Timothy Dalton. Yeah, back on Mongo, Dale and Zarkov, who had been who beat the brainwashing that he was undergoing, they escape but are captured by Prince Voltan's Hawkman, and Prince Voltan is played by the very subtle Brian Blessed. They are taken to Sky City, which is a big floating city in the air because they're all Hawkmen with wings. Prince Baron forces Flash to undergo a ritual by putting their hands in a tree stump that contains a deadly creature, which if it stings them, they will die. Uh, but uh, Flash tricks the Baron and ends up uh, escaping, and cha uh, but Prince Baroness chases him through the uh, the wooded forest of Arborea. But there they are captured by King Vulcan and also taken to Star City, where they are forced to duel uh, using whips and on a 
floating platform where they fall off, they'll you know fall to the doom. However, Flash ends up saving Baron's life just as Ming's advisor Clytus turns up. Uh, they end up killing Clytus, but Ming's forces take everyone prisoners, and Flash refuses Ming's offer to rule Earth in his name, so he is left to die in Sky City's destruction. However, Flash escapes on a you know a fortuitous find of a rocket cycle, which just happened to be there, uh, and Flash. Uh, Voltan and Baron and the others all plot an attack on Ming the Merciless. They end up uh, hijacking War Rocket Ajax and Flash flies the rocket at Ming's city but knows he will die unless the city's defences, which is a big lightning field, is knocked out. Meanwhile, Ming is marrying Dale so he can have his wicked way with her and then probably kill her later on that week. Uh, Prince Baron fights through Ming's forces and deactivates... Which, which raises the question of why bother marrying her then? Yeah, well, I think he just wants to do things right, you know. He wants to respect her. <laughs> right, yeah, you know, he wants to marry her first before he has his way with her and then kills her. I mean, that's yeah, what he, he's just, a gentleman would do, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not a barbarian. He's got his, he's got his own code of honor. Right, right. Yeah. Very unique uh, one. Yeah, but Prince Baron ends up fighting through where Ming's forces and deactivates the lightning field. Flash flies the ship into the city and through, you know, very good piloting, he impales Ming on the ship's bow. Uh, Ming is mortally wounded, and Flash says he'll spare his life if he calls off the attack on Earth. Ming refuses that, because he's Ming the Merciless, clues in the name, and tries to attack Flash with his power ring, but he, he doesn't have enough willpower to, to do that. So he turns the ring on himself and vaporizes himself. Everybody celebrates because they are glad to, glad to be free of the rule of Ming. Uh, Prince Baron and Ori become the new rulers, while where Voltan becomes leader of the armies, and Flash, Dale, and Zarkov talk about getting back to Earth, but they're not sure how. It ends with Ming's power ring being picked up by someone, but we don't see who it is, and we hear Ming's laughter. The end. Very nicely done. Thank you. It's uh, yeah, there's lots of turn and throwing, but it's all basically a bit of a chase, a bit of a fight, some football, and some weird-looking lizard people with faces <laughs> yeah. inside their mouths. It's a really fun movie, though. You know, I yeah, I always enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I saw it when I was a kid, and then I don't think I watched it for really. I mean, like, like. 20 years you know yeah and then uh, several years ago they put out like a you know a new dvd edition of it and i was like oh i haven't seen this movie since i was a kid and i watched it expecting it to be completely cheesy and it, and it is but it isn't at the same time like i mean it's definitely can't be like you said but it's yeah. it's so like vivid and colorful and the special effects and like the the costumes and the makeup are so like just you know fun and unique that i i just i don't think you can watch the movie and just not have a good time with it you know what i mean yeah i mean the set design was brilliant yeah, that's yeah. exactly the sets. Like, look, just I mean, it really does look like an alien planet, and it's you know, yeah. I, I just think it's really visually um, a movie that is really fun to watch. I mean, it just looks so great, and it, it, despite some of the effects being dated, it still holds up to me as a really great, you know, just kind of fun science fiction adventure. Yeah, well, even even like the dodgy special effects, it all adds to its charm. It just makes it makes it feel more like the original comic book, right? Yeah, because I mean, it's been around since what the twenties or thirties, yeah, something, something like, like that. that you know? yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of fun. So. All right, cool. So so, uh, what have you got for your day after? All right, well, Zarkov decides that he wants to stay on Mongo. As a scientist, he just feels like there's too much to study on this new world. However, he agrees to continue working on a way to return Flash and Dale to Earth. Prince Baron sets Dale and Flash up in luxury quarters, and they're basically treated like royalty. But Flash and Dale both get restless, so Flash starts a football league on Mongo with two teams to start with, the Arborea Argonauts and the Mongo Marauders. I guess I should mention that Flash Gordon was a football player for the New York Jets (laughs) in the film before he gets sent into space. Uh, Dale, meanwhile, decides to start a newspaper on Mingo called the Daily News Flash. See see what I did there? 
Daily News oh, Flash. Oh, I like it. I like so, yeah, it. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> uh, Flash, who is flattered by Dale's decision to use his name in her newspaper, begins to pursue her romantically with renewed vigor, and it doesn't take long before Dale gives in to his charms. And that's my day after. Oh, very nice. I think there's going to be some similarities with ours. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But okay, my day after, we've got uh, Prince Baron, Princess Aura, and Voltana busy sorting out the mess left behind by Ming's death. Although cruel, he did have some supporters, so they know there will be battles ahead. Flash and Dale finally get to spend some time together, and Zarkov has given full access to the databases and spacecraft, spacecraft of Mongo. He begins work plotting how they will return to Earth. The technology is there, but it seems that the wormhole that connects Earth to Mongo is only open every few months, so they're going to have to wait. And that's my day after. All right. Well, like you said, some similarities, but I think we'll probably go in some different directions. Let's see what happens. Yeah, so go and watch about your immediate aftermath. All right. Well, several months later, Zarkov returns to Dale and Flash and brings them bad news. Due to a shift in atmospheric conditions, return to Earth will be impossible. The window for a spaceship to leave Mongo or to go through a wormhole or do any of that stuff and make it safely to Earth no longer exists. Flash is upset, but Dale, who has grown to love her life on Mongo, is quite happy with the news. She tries to console Flash, but he's distraught. He misses what he had on Earth, and the idea that he'll never get to see his home planet again is too much for him to bear. He hits a bar, gets drunk, and starts lashing out. He gets into a fight that turns into a bar brawl, and Flash destroys half the bar in the process. Eventually, when the peacekeepers arrive, it takes six of them to bring him down, but they eventually subdue him and haul him off to jail. When he sobers up, Dale comes to get him. When they come home, Dale consoles Flash and then drops a bombshell on him. She's pregnant. And dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm like, well, I don't know if that's the type of thing where you should really go dun dun dun. Like, you know, it's, uh, some people would say it should be celebrated. Yeah, but what's she, what's she pregnant with? Dun dun dun. <laughs> well, spoiler alert: it's Flash's baby. Ah. Oh, yeah, right. sorry, I didn't. I didn't get too creative there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe I should have though. Now that I'm thinking about it, but yeah, no, no, I like it's, it's Flash. Yeah, I could see him though having a. He was a tough guy in a fight. He would uh, beat the crap out of lots of people in a bar if he was drunk. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Well, very good. All right. Well, let's hear what you've got for your immediate aftermath then. Okay. Dale has been writing up their adventures, and Prince Baron asks her for a copy for Mongo's history books. Meanwhile, Flash has been teaching everyone how to play football. It turns out to be hugely popular as it gives the different races and factions of Mongo a chance to compete against each other without anyone getting killed, or at least not too many people getting killed. Dale and Flash spend lots of time together visiting the various areas of Mongo, Mongo, and their romance blossoms. They've also been on a few adventures with Prince Baron and, and Voltan as they bring peace to the tribes and lands, And because it's lots of, we only saw a tiny bit of uh, the lands of Mongo, uh, but they, they travel all over the place and get involved, you know, big fights, giant lizards probably, all that kind of pulp sci-fi stuff. Uh, they end up seeing less and less of Zarkov though, who's been busy preparing a ship for their return home, and he also has to ensure that his calculations are correct. Dale is worried though that he's been spending so much time alone, and that's my immediate aftermath. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll see where that's going. Mm. So what's your long term? All right. Well, five years later, all is well on Mongo. Flash has turned the football league into a huge business with several teams from across the planet. The Daily News Flash has become a huge success, and Flash and Dale are celebrities across the planet. Dale and Flash are happy, but Dale knows that there's always an underlying sadness to Flash because he can't return home to Earth. One day, a man appears in a burst of light in the middle of Mingo City. After the hubbub dies down, the man introduces himself as Adam Strange and explains that he travels. 
<laughs> he explains that he travels from Earth to a planet called Ran by using a Zeta Beam, a burst of energy that instantly transports him across the universe. He's a little surprised when he sees all the, the kind of Hawkman-looking people around, too, and, and is very confused at first, but <laughs> they explain to him that he's, he's you know, on Mongo. Thanagarians? So, yeah, the Thanagarians, exactly. <laughs> So Flash approaches him and explains the situation, and Adam tells him that it would be easy enough to set up a Zeta Beam to return Flash and his family to Earth. Flash is overjoyed, but when he tells Dale the news, she is distraught. She doesn't want to leave Mongo, and she especially doesn't want to remove their son, Flash Jr., from the only world he's ever known as home. Flash is torn, but he looks at his wife and child and finally realizes that it doesn't matter what planet they're on, wherever his family is, is his home. He thanks Adam for the offer, but tells him he's going to stay on Mongo. A few weeks later, as they're celebrating their anniversary, Dale presents Flash with a present. It's a Zeta Beam transmitter. It turns out she talked to Adam Strange before he left Mongo, and he agreed to help her. The device will allow Flash to visit Earth for one weekend every year before he's zapped back to Mongo. Flash is overjoyed and starts preparing for his first trip back to Earth. Over the years, he returns to Earth every year without fail, but he always comes home to his family and lives a truly happy life on Mongo. Ah, oh, very good. Thanks. And nice to see you. Uh... Adam Strange, yeah. Oh, yeah, I thought that was fine. I was kind of thinking about the whole, you know, going back and forth to Earth. And I was like, you know who does that a lot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Adam yeah. Strange. And I guess for people who aren't comics readers, Adam Strange is a longtime DC Comics character who, uh, well, basically travels back and forth. He's sort of like a – he's kind of like a Flash Gordon. He's basically like DC's version of Flash Gordon. Yeah, yeah. You know, very, very similar. Uh, I think, you know, DC sort of – I don't want to say ripped it off, but paid homage, if you will, yeah. to Flash Gordon with uh, Yeah, it's Adam an Strange. Earthman going to an alien planet and having sci-fi adventures and saving the day, isn't it? Right. And he interacts with Hawkman a lot, so – yeah, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't mind seeing an Adam Strange movie. Yeah, I, I think if DC can get their movie act together, that might be in the future. You know, if it was Marvel, they'd already have it in the works by now. But, you know, yeah, DC's yeah. a little behind the, the eight ball on that one. So Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. No, I like, I like your ending. Thank really. you. Thank you. I am, uh, I'm anxious to hear how yours all plays out. So bring us home, Phil. Okay. The time has come for Flash, Dale, and Zarkov to return to Earth. Prince Baron and Voltan thank them for everything they have done for Mongo. Baron gives Flash a communicator so they can keep in touch when they're back on Earth. They say their goodbyes and take off, and after a bumpy journey, they make a home. But due to an unforeseen time dilation effect of the wormhole, only a few days have passed since they actually left Earth. Hmm. They have not been missed, so do not have to explain what happened. Earth is safe, and that is all that matters. And they decide to keep their travels secret, because, I mean, who's going to believe them? Right. Uh, Zarkov hides the ship, and they all spend a few days together before Flash and Dale leave. They end up getting an apartment together in New York City, and are married a few days later. They are happy and live a great life. Dale works hard at the newspaper, and Flash returns back to playing football, And it's but they end up losing touch with Zarkov until Flash sees the Doctor on the front page of a newspaper. He picks it up with a big smile on his face, reads that Zarkov has been appointed a special advisor to the President. Flash is very extremely happy for his old friend, but then he spots something that horrifies him. Looking closely at the photo, he sees that Zarkov is wearing Ming's power ring. Ah, mm. I like it. Dun, 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 that's like yes. the perfect ending for like you know to bring on another sequel. I like it, and then yes. like just that that music playing. Oh, I like yeah. I like that Phil. Very cool. I it forgot about that thing. part when I was when I was doing my after the ending, but I, I'm glad that you uh, you picked up on that about the ring. Yeah, no, I just thought because you know I always thought Zarkov just brushed off the whole brainwashing thing a bit too easy. So right, no, that's yeah, yeah, right. He could be. Oh, I like that. Mm. I, I will say when you when you mentioned that due to a, a time dilation effect, I thought you were going to have them get back there and then find the Statue of Liberty half buried in the sand. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I was toying with that to be honest. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, along those lines. But then I thought, no, no, I won't go that way today. Right. So. No, I like it. We both kind of had happy endings, which is a, a, unusual for us to both sort of end up that I know, way. So. I know. 
pretty cool. That was our Flash Gordon. Excellent. All right. Well, do you have any Flash Gordon uh, trivia for us? Yeah, I'll just give you some Flash points, though. Oh, oh I like <laughs> it. But I'm bumped. Okay. Uh, Max von Sydow's Ming costume weighed 70 pounds, and he could only stand in it for a few moments. And with all the people, the Hawkman, they could only stand up in their costumes, so they couldn't sit down, so they had to lie down between takes if they wanted to rest. Wow. Uh, most of Sam J. Jones's dialogue was dubbed, and as he's playing Flash, there was an awful lot of dialogue. Right. It turns out that this was due to Jones falling out with the producer Dino De Laurentiis over lack of payment, and Jones refused to go into the recording studio to loop his lines. Mm. John Hollis played one of Kleitz's observers, the guys with the electro headbands, you know, so like the secret police always watching monitors. And Hollis was also in The Empire Strikes Back, and he plays Lando's aide, Lobot, who oh, yeah. also has an electro headband. Right. Which, uh, you know, that's a weird kind of typecasting. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the roles probably dried up pretty quickly, I would yeah, think. Yeah, just did you. Yeah, you <laughs> look into, you know, this, the papers going, there's not, no roles for this. <laughs> right. uh, Brian Blessed improvised the scene when he pinched Dale's bum. Uh, so Melody Anderson's reaction is genuine. Oh. Uh-huh. And Flash Gordon could have been Arnold Schwarzenegger, but at the time his accent was getting in the way. Hmm. And Kurt Russell was also approached and he auditioned, but he uh, he ended up turning it down because he didn't think there was enough to it to do. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. Well, I mean, ultimately he was probably right in a way only because the film wasn't a big success. I mean, it's kind of a cult classic now, but it was not a yeah. box office hit by any means, you know. I know. You could also see, though, uh, you know, Jack Burton. From, right, uh, big trouble, little Chinese, sort of almost like a Flash Gordon kind of spoof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you yeah, went down definitely. that road, but yeah, but no, it's it's a good film. I hope I do hope we get another Flash Gordon film at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think there will be just because he's a known property and they don't leave anything alone in Hollywood these days. Yeah, you know we'll, what I mean? We'll come back round again, won't it? Right. All right then. Well, those are those are our endings for Flash Gordon and the Prestige. We hope you enjoyed them. As always, you can fill us in uh, on your thoughts or your ending ideas by reaching out to us via our uh, channels, which we'll explain to you, tell you about later. In the meantime, let's move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature. Yes, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So uh, there's a new show coming out on Netflix called Troll Hunters, and it's about these kids who get kind of mixed up in this centuries-old battle between these trolls who live underground. has a lot of great talent in it. Uh, The late, great Anton Yelchin plays the main character. Um, But at this year's New York Comic Con, I was fortunate enough to get to sit down with uh, most of the cast and crew. Uh, And so uh, we I I get to have some really cool interviews with some amazingly cool people. Um, So let's uh, let's let's take them in order shall we phil yeah let's go through it so here we have uh, guillermo del toro who is the creator and the producer and uh i don't really know what else i need to say about guillermo del toro (laughs) take it away del toro let's you know talk about troll hunters there we go i got to see you good to see you too so tell us do you do you ever sleep because it seems like you're making all these amazing movies and then you decide to just create a cartoon show for the heck of it lately i haven't slept much but you know the but troll hunters has been in development for about uh, 10 years and alone at dreamworks for about seven and as the series about two or three you know and uh, the heavy lifting of it happened during the post of pacific rim that was very long and uh, pre of Crimson Peak that was very long so that's when that's when the real heavy lifting happened and then we did the pilot in two parts the series got approved and uh, you know it's been fun fun dinner cool. since then awesome 
You're well known for having such a, just a visual imagination and such a wealth of ideas. How do you narrow it down to decide what projects you're going to take best your time in and work on? Thankfully, I don't decide. They decide for me. You know, because uh, I wish I had a, 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 a sheik that tells me what do you want to do, but they don't. They, you know, you are you are at the mercy of the money or at the mercy of your resourcefulness. You know. If you can make smaller movies, you make like the one I'm making right now is much smaller scale, and it means I found a way to squeeze the the belt, right. you know. But if you go for big scale like Hellboy, Pacific Rim, things like that, you you can decide. You know, God knows Ron and I would have done Hellboy three <laughs> ages ago, but nobody is willing to give us a hundred million dollars. You know? right. so, they decide for you. And, and that sometimes means you go two, three years without making a movie. And that's why I keep busy doing other stuff. So here we have Ron Perlman, best known for playing Hellboy or Vincent in the old Beauty and the Beast TV show or any of a million that one. Yeah, other yeah. roles. Uh, he's, he's pretty awesome all around. Uh, and here he is talking about voicing one of the main characters. So you and Guillermo are no strangers to working together, obviously, but this is a different format being an animated series. Has it has it been a different experience for you? Uh, well, I do a lot of animation, and we did a movie called Book of Life together, which was animated, so it was kind of like... Uh, but um, this was his project very much. Uh, Book of Life was uh, Jorge uh, uh, Gutierrez. You know, it's, 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 when you're doing a film, there's lots and lots of prep time and lots of discussion time. When, you, when you're doing animated, you jump right in and your performance is very primal and very instinctive and, and you're doing whatever comes to your mind and you're, you're, not, you're not trying stuff out. You're actually going right for the gusto. I like to work like that, and, and Gamo likes to work like that, so um, it was good, it was fun. But for me, it, it, the, the approach is always the same, like I gotta figure out who it is, how he sounds, what his values are, and you know, what pisses him off, especially in Troll Hunters, because he's pissed off all the time. Always good to hear Ron Perlman talk, and I love his voice. Oh yeah, he's fantastic, he was great, a lot of fun. Uh, next up, we have uh, Stephen Yun, best known for playing Glenn on The Walking Dead. Uh, but he, uh, Stephen, Stephen Yun plays one of the main uh, characters. He's more of a supporting character, actually. But we also have Charlie Saxton, who uh, starred in the TV show Hung with uh, Thomas Jane. And uh, yeah, he yeah. plays one of the main characters as well. So here they are talking about their roles in the show. Hey, everybody. Hey, Hello. guys. How's it going? How's it going? Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Tell us what's it been like working with Guillermo on an animated series. The illest. Fantastic. The <laughs> yeah. coolest, most amazing experience I've ever been through. I was very nervous and intimidated going into the room the first time working with him, and it could not have been the most relaxed, collaborative, fun environment that I've ever worked in. Yeah, same. Um, you know, to, just to be asked to be part of this is an honor, and then to go in there with 
nerve, such nerves, and to have all that be totally just calmed by how wonderful he is and how giving he is has been really awesome. Awesome. For me, what's really cool about the character, I play a character named Steve, who's a bully, school bully. Um, Personally, for me, it's been great because I get to play the game. It's awesome. Uh, but two, he's, he's layered. He has a journey. And so, uh, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but... That's not your typical bully. Do you guys have a different process for creating your characters for an animated, like for a voice only, as you do when you're working on camera? No. I, uh, I definitely do the same process of discovering this person, who they are, uh, how would they react to certain situations. Situations, um, like he said, there, there there really isn't that much of a difference when it comes down to the craft, if you will, the, the art of it all. Because at the end of the day, you're just trying to make the best version of whatever you're trying to make that you can. And you know, with animation too, though, like what's great is it's it's slightly more collaborative than than live action. Live action, you're left with what's on the film, and they might be able to edit you a specific way. But uh, with with this. I did my voice and I thought I knew my character and then when you see the final product you're like oh there's another layer to that character that I didn't think about right. uh, which is really great yeah, animation is cool because you can do the voice acting and for me and Steve, we were able to really improvise and do whatever we wanted and then they animated around that, which isn't really heard of a lot and that was just so cool and freeing and great for everybody working in the room because then it's kind of like, oh yeah, that, that's great. And then something that is such an improvised thing, the beauty of animation is you can go back and keep adding and keep recreating. So this one little improv line that I had is now an ongoing thing in the show and it's just a really cool, fun thing, because like you said, live action, you gotta set up what you got, you gotta shoot where you are, and that's it. I just imagine, like, an animator, like, cursing your name. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep saying stuff. Just shut up. <laughs> and finally, we have the great Kelsey Grammer, who was delightful, I might add. Uh, he's obviously best known for playing Fraser Crane uh, in Cheers and Fraser, and he was fantastic. And he also voices one of the main characters in the show, uh, and he was just really great to talk to. So here is Kelsey Grammer. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good, good, thanks. You've played so many different kinds of roles in your career. What attracted you to this part particularly? Well, Guillermo, and you know, it's just, I'd like to, I'd, I'd like working with you. You know, it's like, uh, oh, that sounds like fun, I'll try it. Right. You know, it it's, it's pretty simple, really. Like I read a little writing sample and thought, oh, you know, I could play that guy. <laughs> it usually comes out of that. In this case, he said that, you know, he never pictured anybody else playing a role but me, so that was very helpful. I've done a lot of this animated stuff. The vocal performance is fun. I, I grew up with a voice and always liked using it in any way I could. So, um, you know, I used to do impressions and stuff like that. So, it, uh, you just like to get as colorful as you can. In this case, this character, Blinky, is, is kind of, um, he's sort of professorial in a lot of ways, but he's also energetic. He, 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 is, the, he is the keeper of the, the secret of good and evil of the two worlds interfacing man's world and the troll world and he knows that his obligation is to save both through this young man by teaching him how to become 
the troll hunter. What do you find are the biggest differences between voice acting and on-camera acting? It's just uh, the, the the vocal uh, requirement is just bigger. You know, it's it's uh, you don't have the same luxury of knowing that you know a look is going to convey something. Uh, somebody may draw that and then you know and, and animate it, and that's great. When I did um, Toy Story two, uh, John Lasseter was in the in the booth, and I, I did a particular reading, and he stopped and he ran out of the booth and said, "Oh my God, I can't wait to animate that." So I thought, well, that's a unique kind of way of looking at things. And then, but he's another really creative guy, you know, that kind of energy that he has, very similar to Guillermo. So it's that same thing. It's just this a vision that is unique and rare, and uh, but, but but playful, you know. He's always trying to tell a good story, tell a story that makes people care about things, and I think that's what I think this achieves that a lot. That was fantastic. Kelsey Grammer is a star. What a legend. Yeah, they're they're all really cool. I mean, there were really some some of I mean, first of all, I'm I'm a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro. He's one of my favorite directors. Uh, you know, I love Kelsey Grammer. Obviously I'm a big fan of The Walking Dead and Stephen Young and Ron Perlman, I've been a fan of since the eighties with Beauty and the Beast. So this was really kind of a dream uh press opportunity for me to talk to some just some really great people and some you know, some pretty big names overall. I mean, these are oh, yeah, certainly yeah. some some uh, cream of the crop in terms of you know the the acting world, so uh, it, it was pretty exciting, and, and I had a lot of fun talking to them. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the show. I mean, a, a kids show from Guillermo del Toro that's uh, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, we um we got to screen the first two episodes at Comic Con actually, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a really fun show. It's it's very uh, del Toro esque in that you know it is very kid friendly, but it does have some darker elements. You know, it's got some good humor to it and stuff. So um, I definitely recommend checking that out if you get the chance. It's on Netflix, I believe, starting in December. So look yes. for that. Yeah, some points this December. I could, we can't find an exact date, but it should be uh, any day now. Exactly. All right, well, let's move on then to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. This week we are talking about 1994. So, Phil, climb on into that famous time machine of yours and take us back some 20 years and tell us what was happening in the world in the oh year of 1994. 22 years, 1994 doesn't seem... <laughs> doesn't seem like it, I know. 19, no. It's crazy. Okay, yeah, the British Prime Minister was John Major and the US President was Bill Clinton. And a few of the events that happened in that year, we had this ice skater Nancy Kerrigan was attacked. Yeah, by like, some of those people, it was all under the orders of Tonya Harding's ex who ordered it to happen. Edward Munch's The Scream was stolen in Oslo. Yeah, the Winter Olympics took place in Lillehammer. China got its first connection to the internet. And over here, the Church of England ordained its first female priests... Nelson Mandela became South Africa's first black president. Uh, John Wayne Gacy was executed. Got to get the serial killers in, haven't we? Uh, <laughs> yep. O.J. Simpson went for a bit of a ride in a white Ford Bronco oh, and the man. police tagged along. Right. I, I remember being in university watching that on the in one of the... The student bars was on the TV. Yeah. Everybody's well, just going, oh, my God, it's crazy. So uh, a funny story about that. I remember that a buddy of mine and I went to the video store that night. Um, and kids, for those of you who are young, video stores were places where you could go and, and you could rent <laughs> movies and then you bring them back a couple of days later. Um, that doesn't make any sense. I know. So, But, but you know, it was, it was like, a, I don't know, Friday or Saturday, whatever, whatever night it was. But we were like, we're going to rent two movies tonight because it was fairly early and we were off work and whatever. So we picked up two movies. And I don't remember what the second one was, but one of them was Tron. And it was one of those nights. It was like, man, I haven't seen Tron in a few years. We got to watch oh, Tron. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. Tron. You know, I'm a big Tron fan. So 
Um, so we watched the, the, the first movie or whatever it was, I forget, and then we turned on the TV and there's OJ. And so we sat there watching it for, you know, God knows how long. And, and so <laughs> um, so then, of course, by the time we, you know, we finished, it was late. We put Tron in and, and I fell asleep during it um, only because, you know, it was late and I was tired and blah, blah, blah. So for years afterward, though, anytime Tron would come up and I talk, talk about what big fan I am, my, my buddy would always be like, you're such a big fan. You fell asleep during it. I'm like, it was OJ's fault, damn it. It wasn't my God, fault. Yeah. OJ had so much to blame. If he hadn't for. been running from the cops, I would have made it all the way through Tron. Yeah. So I always associate the OJ chase with, with the movie Tron, which is kind of a weird association, but what are you going to do? But yeah, that was 1994. Uh, also, we had Jupiter was hit by 21 fragments of the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. And I remember when that was happening, that was all going to be, everybody said it was going to be the end of the world. It was going right. to hit us. But Jupiter is the solar system sponge and has saved Earth many times over from <laughs> comets and meteorites and meteors. So right, right. Thank you, Jupiter. Yes, thank and you, Jupiter. Your, your gravity mass. Brazil won the World Cup. They were playing against Italy and won 3-2. Jeffrey Dahmer was being to death by a fellow inmate, so thank you, fellow inmate. Yes, thank you to Jupiter and thank you to fellow inmates. Yeah, and the first version of Netscape Navigator was released. I wonder how that's going to wow. yeah, pan out. Yeah, I used Netscape <laughs> back in the day. I remember it. Yeah, me too as well. And that's 1994, so the births of Dakota Fanning. Yay! Justin <laughs> Bieber. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Ivana Baquero, who was in Pan's Labyrinth. She was the girl in that. Uh, yep. and, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but we also saw the deaths of Cesar Romero, Telly Savalas, Harry Nielsen, Jack Kirby, King Kirby, mm-hmm. uh, William Conrad, Joseph Cotton, Bill Hicks, John Candy, Kirk Cobain, Richard Nixon, Ed and Senna, Dick Sargent, Bert Lancaster, and Raul Julia. That was 1994. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the movies then. Okay. So the year was, there was lots of movies that were memorable. I'm just not sure whether it was a great year for movies. There's lots of good ones there, but uh, it was a bit of a mixed bag, I thought, when I was going over it. But do you want to start off with your number 10? I certainly will. And what's interesting about this year for movies is I found out that it was very alphabetically organized. So on my short list, every movie but two started with the letter P through the letter S. Oh, okay. And every and so I like when I was looking through the list of movies from 1994 to see what was out, for the first half of all the list of all the movies in 94, I was like, man, what a terrible year for movies this was. And then I get to P and I'm like, oh my God, what a great year for movies this was. It's kind of weird. Like all the movies that I love this year are in like the latter half of the alphabet. Okay, I'll I, look forward to, uh, to hearing this. Now. Yeah, I just, I just found that to be an odd sort of, uh, an odd sort of correlation there, so. Okay, take us away with your P's and S's. All right, well, my number 10 choice is Star Trek Generations. Uh, and I know there are people out there who detract, you know, are detractors of this film, and, and I never quite understood it. I mean, I love The Next Generation it was on TV. You know, it finished up. It put out this movie that, you know, put... Kirk and Picard together again. Um, I thought it was a really fun, fun movie. A lot of humor in it. You know, it had some great uh, action spectacles. I'm not saying it's a perfect film, but I thought it was a really great Next Generation movie. And then the fact that they also added in Captain Kirk. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of passed the baton from one series to the next. I don't know. I love it. I've, I've watched it many times over the years. I just don't get what people don't like about it. I think it's a really fun film. And as a Star Trek fan, I, I really enjoy it. It's my number 10. Yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed the film as well. It's uh, it's something that's my favorite Star Trek film. It didn't make my list, but I, I always enjoy it when I watch it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, no, that's a good pick. My number 10 is Ace Ventura Pet Detective, uh, which uh, first time I'd really sort of become aware of Jim Carrey. And I saw it when, it, as I said, it was at university. I went to see it with a friend of mine, Gary. We didn't know anything about it because before the internet was sort of making big things. We just knew there was this new comedy show, didn't know what to expect. Uh, and it was just, we just laughed all the way through. Uh, it was over the top. Uh, I can understand why some people wouldn't like it, but I just really loved it. Uh, just from the beginning, he's walking with the 
the box and kicking gear and then all the silly voices and silly things and you know laces out and all that stuff uh, i just thought it was lots of fun and couldn't stop laughing Sure, fair enough. I, 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 I have never been a Jim Carrey fan, to be honest with you. His style of humor is not what I typically enjoy. So most yeah, of his yeah. early big hit movies are ones I'm not a fan of, and yeah. I will say Ace Ventura is one of them. I'm not, I'm not really a fan of it personally, yeah. but, uh, but I can see why you enjoy it. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. you liked it. Well, my number nine is, uh, well, pop quiz, hot shot. See if you can guess what movie my number nine is. Is it uh, the one? The one on the bus that's uh, going really fast. Yes, that would be it. I can't go under fifth. What's it called? It's the one that's going, it's going so fast that it can't stop. Yeah, that would be it. It's like speeding along. There you go, yeah, speeding along. Oh, speed, that's the one. There you go, yeah. (laughs) So, yes, my number nine is Speed, starring Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. Uh, Just great, great action film. I mean, I just think it's one of those movies that, you know, it's kind of, I mean, Keanu Reeves has made so many of these, like, iconic movies, you know, like in an action genre, like like Point Break and stuff. And and this is just one of them. It's so much fun. It's such a cool concept for a movie you know hadn't really been done before um you know and and him and sandra bullock together are terrific and it's kind of the movie that made a star out of sandra bullock which is which is obviously yeah, a good yeah. thing um and it's just a you know an adrenaline ride and i, I think jan de bont who directed it and directed twister and sort of seems to have fallen off the map for some reason i don't know why because he kept making hit action movies that are really fun uh, i wish he'd sort of come back in because I, I think he could teach today's action movie directors a thing or two about how to make a good action movie um, oh, definitely. Yeah. But uh, Speed is definitely one of them. And, and it could have been higher on my list. But again, this ended up being a really strong year. So uh, that's my number nine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's another good film I really like as well. It didn't quite make my list, but I, I've not seen it in a long, long time, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Why. It's definitely worth revisiting, I think. Okay. Well, my number nine is Clicks. The, it was Kevin Smith's first film, black and white comedy about some guys working in a convenience store. And all the people are coming and out. It was uh, very low budget. It was just I just liked the way it was just uh, about people who I sort of knew, similar kinds. Right. Uh, just going through the day, I just trying to make the most of it, and like a dead end, crappy job, which I didn't really enjoy. But they, they just you know dealing with stupid customers, and I thought it was quite funny. It works quite well. Kevin Smith sort of was stuck for a while with the whole just keep the camera pointed at people and let them talk. Uh, I think it's got some of the best dialogue of his films. Uh, and also we introduced the Jane Silent Bob and some bizarre, strange characters, and also my very favourite one, which was uh, Randall, yeah. who was uh, Dante Hicks's uh, colleague, who I just found hilarious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent but choice. Uh, yeah, yeah. thank you. And it's uh, all in black and white, and if you see the alternate ending where Dante gets shot, it's a bit weird. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what have, you, what have you got for your, your number eight? Yeah. Well, my number eight is one of the biggest grossing movies of the year. It is The Lion King. Uh, no surprise to anyone who listens regularly. Yeah. I love my Disney I had a movies. That would be in your list, but I do love The Lion King. I think it's probably one of my like probably one of my top two Disney films. I remember when it came out and actually the same buddy that I was having the Tron issue with, with OJ, uh, <laughs> we would go to the movies every week. I mean, multiple times. And I remember we saw Lion King three weekends in a row because we would go to the movies and there really wasn't much else playing at the time. And so we kind of went to the movies a lot and we'd seen everything. So it was like, well, what do you want to see? I was like, well, let's go see the Lion King again. Cause we enjoyed it so much. And it was just, it's just a magical film. I think it's so good. I mean, it's very classic Disney formula, but it's so well done. And the, the characters are great. The voices are great. There's so much good humor in it, you know? And, um, yeah. I, you know, I just, I really think it's, it's a fantastic one. And, and, uh, and Mufasa as played by James Earl Jones is hands down one of my favorite Disney characters of all time. So, um, it's, uh, it's a great film. So that's, 
that's my number eight. That was a good pick. Uh, it's it's a Disney film I really do like as well, but it didn't quite make my list as well. I don't know if a Disney movie is ever going to make your list, Phil. I know. I don't know. I, <laughs> Every but, time uh, it's a no, Disney it's, movie, it's on my list and not on yours. So but I, I'd go, I'd, uh, I remember going to see that as well. I was at also University. I think we saw it in Newcastle. I went with my friend Kate. And again, we didn't know what we'd, we'd read about it. I quite liked it back then. We didn't know much about films you're going to go see. But we went in and watched it and we just came out and uh, we just, I remember singing some of the songs. Yeah. Walking back to the train station. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a couple of years ago, I took my daughter to see The Lion King on stage, which was really good. Oh, sure, sure. That was a hell of a show, yeah. Really good show. But no good pick, but didn't make mine. Fair enough. But as you say, I'm not sure which ones would. Yeah, you know. It all depends what else is out there. But uh, my number eight is Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ones where he's starring Johnny Depp as cult filmmaker Ed Wood, but it's, I feel it's one of the good ones, like uh, with Sleepy Hollow as well. Follows Wood's life when he was making some of his best-known films, which were all pretty lousy, and is how, when he worked with Bella Lugosi, who was played by Martin Landau. Uh, and this film also stars Sir Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, Jeffrey Jones, Lisa Marie and Bill Murray. And I just think it worked well. It was it was Johnny Depp doing his maniacal kind of over-the-top acting, but it sort of fitted in with the character of Ed Wood. Uh, it was all very bizarre some of the films he made and the subject matter. And I think Tim Burton was the person to make it, and I think he did a really good job with it. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I've always had a very love-hate relationship with Tim Burton. You know, every he puts out a movie, yeah. and I love it, and I think it's brilliant, and he puts out another movie that I hate with a passion. And uh, Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, he's got some I don't like at all. Yeah, Ed Wood, for me, is not one that I enjoy. In fact, I always used to joke about it. I think it's very fitting that Tim Burton made a movie about a guy <laughs> who's uh, really passionate about films but is a terrible director. I mean, there's, there's a little something there, but... But he has made enough really good movies that I can't say that fully about him. But um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely one I think I'm going to have to revisit because I, I I have come to appreciate him more. But uh, it's as I recall watching it, not a huge yeah. uh, fan. I think of that it's, film. it's def- def- definitely worth a rewatch if you haven't seen it in a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Well, my number seven is a film called PCU. One of my favorite comedies of all time. One of the greatest '90s comedies of them all. Are you familiar with it? You don't sound like you are. PCU. Yeah, PCU. Uh... Is it known by anything else? No, uh, I don't think so. You've you, you got to track it down, Phil. It's hysterical. So it's a comedy starring David Spade uh, and a pre-fame Jeremy Piven and a pre-fame John Favreau, a lot of other recognizable faces in it. Oh, and okay. it's about um, this very uh, kind of uptight college kid who goes for a preview weekend at a college campus and he gets mixed up with this sort of crazy fraternity, um, sort of your typical, you know, getting in trouble fraternity, always close to getting thrown off the campus. Uh, Jeremy Piven plays sort of the ringleader. He's kind of the, you know, he's that guy who's smarter than everyone and, you know, yeah. more clever than everyone. And John Favreau plays a dreadlocked uh, heavy metal fan and it is just funny from start to finish it's so it's so pointed some of the humor they they really hit on so many of the stereotypes of the college campuses like the stoners and the you know the the militant lesbians yeah, yeah. and all these things and it's just a funny funny movie it's kind of a, a cult classic in a way it was never a big hit but it's one of those movies that back in the 90s when there wasn't much else to do but rent movies you know from blockbuster or whatever i would yeah. rent that movie over and over and over again and, and every you know every month or so i'd take it to a different friend's house and be like you got to watch this movie you know um, oh, and uh, that one passed me by totally and still yeah. to this day whenever i see people at concerts i always quote the movie and i always say the line you're wearing the shirt of the band you're going to see don't be that guy <laughs> yes yeah, still to this day my wife can quote that line whenever we go to concerts and see people wearing the t-shirts of the bands they're there to see it. both of us that's the first thing that comes out of my mouth is don't be that guy so uh it's it's a great great film i definitely recommend tracking it down oh yeah i definitely will do that because i do like a good college comedy yeah it's really fun 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I always like it when there's a film I've not heard. Yeah. Just it always it's always amazing when there is a film you've never heard of before. Right. I know. I know. Uh, it's good. I know what that's like a bonus. Okay. Well, my number seven is uh, Swimming with Sharks, uh, also known as The Boss and Buddy Factor in certain countries. Uh, but this one is a comedy, well, a black comedy, directed by George Huang and stars Kevin Spacey, Frank Whaley, and Michelle Forbes. Uh, and it's all about a, a young guy played by Whaley who he's a writer. And he ends up going working for a movie mogul played by Kevin Spacey. And Kevin Spacey's character treats him like absolute crap. Just, you know, gets him to do all these stupid errands, terrible things. And he's ruins his life, basically. But then he ends up... Uh, Kevin Spacey's character is, is his ex-girlfriend turns up and is going to kill him. It's very, it goes to dark places, but it's still very funny and extremely well acted. And uh, it's well worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Because it sort of flew, went under the radar, I think, for... I wouldn't say it's a cult classic, but it's just one of those really well-acted films. It's Yeah, I don't want to say too much else because it might spoil it. It also stars Benicio Del Toro and a few other people, familiar faces. But yeah, worth checking out. You know, I've, I've always wanted to see that movie, and I've never actually gotten around to it. Um, and it's yeah. it's funny because I know I keep going back to the video store, but that was like a staple on the shelf at the video store. Yeah. And I always wanted to rent it, but none of my friends ever wanted to watch it with me. So I never – I just never got around to seeing it. But I remember that movie always being on the shelf. I can picture the cover of the of the box, the movie poster in my head. Yeah. I mean the minute you said something of Sharks, I was like, I know exactly the movie you're talking about, but I've never gotten around to watching it. Well, that was that was me because I saw it – I still saw it in the, like the, the late 90s though, but I, I – I remember always seeing it in the video shop and it was always on the trailers and I was going, wow, that sounds really good. And then I sort of read a, a few couple of reviews about him, whatever it was, magazine was back then. Yeah. Uh, but didn't, I was going, and it was always like, there was always something else to get out of them. But when I finally did get it, I was watching, I was going, wow, this is brilliant. Right. But it's worth checking out All if right. you haven't seen it. I will it. track it down. Yeah. All right. Well, my number six is a film that has already appeared on your list. It is Clerks. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a big Kevin Smith fan. I do love uh, most of his movies and clerks is definitely one of my favorites. Uh, I will, and again, another movie that I, I must've watched probably five weekends in a row when I first saw it on video, because I was just literally taking to people's houses and be like, we're watching this movie tonight. Cause it's awesome. Yeah. Um, although I will say all those video store memories are coming back. I do remember the very first time I watched it, I had only heard about it and I'd heard all the buzz that it was really great comedy and it was, you know, shot for $27,000 and it was on the festivals. And so I rented it with my girlfriend and my mom. And oh, okay, if you're yeah. familiar with the film at all, you know how incredibly awkward that movie could be to watch with your mother. <laughs> oh, yes, uh, yes, yes. 37? Um, luckily, <laughs> In a row? Right, so luckily, uh, my mom was cool and she laughed and enjoyed it. But it was still very awkward. I'll never forget that. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so I, that was another movie I championed and went around with, you know, taking it to all my friends' houses. And uh, I do. I love it. It's a great film. So Salsa Shark. Salsa Shark, exactly. Yeah, right. so, yeah no, it's a yeah, very quotable film. Okay, yeah, so my number six is The Crow, uh, which we went after the ending of. Went after the ending in episode 11. Wow. Yeah, and we had uh, Rochelle Davis, who played uh, Sarah in the film. Yeah, that's what she was talking about. Uh, guest starring, telling, sharing her after the ending, which was a lot of fun. So if you're a fan of The Crow, go back and check that out. Yeah, but it's the uh, Alex Proyas film starring Brandon Lee, uh, based on the comic book by James O'Barr. Probably one of the first new comic book movies of the time. Dark, moody. Brandon Lee did some amazing things. It was such a shame what happened with that. Uh, also stars Ernie Hudson, who I was like, and it can't rain all the time. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, if you remember episode 11 and you remember my emotional reaction to the film, yes, uh, yeah. you, you may not be surprised to know that it, it might possibly pop up on my list. I did think it was going to be. It, it, it could. I'm not yeah. saying it will. I'm just saying it could. So, 
Uh, but for now, my number five is Shallow Grave, the debut film by Danny Boyle, who went on to direct things such as 27 Hours and Slumdog Millionaire, uh, and starring a very young Ewan McGregor. Uh, it, just a film I really, really love. And I remember watching it you know, back when it came out in the 90s, and I didn't see it for a long time. And then it came out on a Criterion Edition Blu-ray a couple of years ago, yeah. and I rewatched it, and it holds up so, so well. I mean, it is a nail-biting thriller, and basically it's about these three friends friends. Um, they, they rent a room in their flat to a man who checks in with a duffel bag. He dies overnight. They find out the bag is full of money. They decide to keep it, and then they are not able to trust each other anymore, and things get darker from there. Uh, utterly fantastic film. Like I said, a real nail-biter, um, all about you know friendship and trust, and, and it's just suspenseful from start to finish. Uh, Ewan McGregor is great, and it's uh, you know it's not a high budget film. It's it's you know a smaller film, uh, but it's Danny Boyle, who's a great director, and uh, it is a movie that I really really love. Yeah, it's a great film. I only I think I only saw it around about the time it came out. Uh, so maybe it's definitely worth revisiting. Times it, it, it holds up it way better than I expected, yeah. actually. Yeah, I remember enjoying it at the time, but uh, lots of those kind of films when it's just this inevitability of everybody going and against each other and i sometimes find them hard going but gotcha no i need to watch it again i've not seen it a long, long yeah time. It's, it's worth it yeah. for sure okay excellent uh, my number five is the hudsucker proxy the Coen brothers film which uh, sam raimi co-wrote uh, it stars tim robbins as uh as a, he's a bit naive and he goes working for manufacturing company and jennifer jason lee as a news reporter also stars the late great paul newman and it's who basically hires tim robbins because it's all part of a scam money making thing it's just quick it's got that great kind of uh 1930s 40s kind of style to it the quick fire repartee between jennifer jason lee is the you know it's like an old carry ground film that kind of feel right to it. right the old screwball comedies uh, yeah that's the way screwball that's what we're looking for yeah but it's uh, got great sumptuous sets you know the clothes are brilliant and you know the invention of a hula hoop you know for kids that kind of thing and it's got then it all goes a little bit weird and strange at the end with the with angels maybe and things like that but uh, i i really like the coen brothers films there's a, there's a few films there which i don't like but this one i i really love all right very good well my number four is the ref starring dennis leary and kevin spacey in one of his earlier roles uh it's a christmas movie and it is about a uh, crook who ends up taking this family hostage but the family is too busy bickering to <laughs> uh, notice that they've been taken hostage so to speak so uh it's a comedy it's really really funny um and another one that uh i've watched many times over the years and actually just recently i'd say maybe a year or two ago around christmas time I, my wife had never seen it i finally got her to sit down and watch it and i'm like you have to watch this movie and even though it's you know 20 years old and it's from the 90s and, and whatever uh, i was thrilled to see that she thought it was just as funny as i always have another movie i can quote endlessly uh, in fact i still do often Whenever I'm trying a new food, I always like to say, mm, these lamb cousins are great, honey, um, which if you've seen the movie, you'll you'll know why that's funny. If you haven't seen the movie, you won't. But um, I, I really love this movie. I've always been a big fan of Dennis Leary, and uh, he's just perfect in this film. And uh, it's a really funny movie, uh, but it has heart to it, too, which I, which I like a lot. So uh, that's my number four. And in many other years, could have been even higher on my list, but uh, a few came in ahead of it, so... Well, it's uh, it's one of those ones. I think it must be a Kevin Spacey thing because, like with Swim Swim with Sharks, it's one I always saw in the video shop and also always saw trailers for, but never actually got around to seeing. I've never seen it. Oh, are you serious? So to, oh, Phil, you've got to watch it before Christmas. Because I always wanted to. Because I always like the trailer. It's a it's a Christmas movie, it. and you've got to you've got to watch it for Christmas this year. It's cool. not with your daughter, list, yeah. not appropriate, but yeah, uh, no, it's really good. I, I really want you to watch it. <laughs> 
Oh, brilliant. Okay, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll get that watched. Yep. Oh, I like that. Okay, so uh, my number four is uh, True Lies, written and directed by James Cameron, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Arnold, Art Malik, Bill Paxton, Tia Carrera, Eliza Dushku, and Charlton Heston. It's another one of those films where people say, oh, God, remakes, remakes suck. It's another one you can throw at them because it's a remake of a 1991 French comedy called La Totale. And you probably know, but it follows a government agent called Harry Tasker, who is actually a spy, but his wife and kid doesn't know it, and it all gets involved in this uh, terrorist scheme, and he's got to fight and keep it hidden from his wife, and then he ends up having to get his wife involved. And then there's Jamie Lee Curtis in a little black dress, and there's lots of good action scenes, and, yeah, it's a great film, funny, good action, some good fight scenes, and it's good seeing all Schwarzenegger doing his action comedy thing, and this one works quite well. Well, uh, interesting story about that. So good, good pick. I am a huge, huge, huge James Cameron fan, yeah, and I am an even huger Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. I've I've been watching Arnold Schwarzenegger films most of my life, and and you know I'm an unabashed fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, um, and I'm not a fan of True Lies. Ah, okay. And so I remember watching it when it came out. I didn't love it at the time. I remember being disappointed in it, and I had never seen it again since then because I just I didn't really love the film. So actually, I watched it just a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. Um, because I was jonesing for some Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I had heard uh, yeah, some yeah. talk about it on a podcast I was listening to, and I was like, I'm going to watch True Lies again because I've only ever seen it the once, and it's you know it's James Cameron and it's Schwarzenegger, and I, I'm going to watch this movie. And so I uh, sat down and I watched it just a couple weeks ago, and I still just don't like it that much ah, i don't okay. know what it is i it's it's a well-made film you know i, yeah, I think arnold yeah. is great in it for what he does and i just it just it it just does nothing for me i i, I don't oh, know why one, well, i'm one of those not sure why yeah it's always weird that isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. so uh so not on my list but i, I certainly understand it it's a, it's a film a lot of people love and i and i get that i just i just i don't love it okay fair enough all right well my number three is pulp fiction uh, which oh, we excellent. also went after the ending of uh, in one of our earlier episodes. Yeah, that was episode nine. Episode nine, there you go. Um, Quentin Tarantino, I mean, this was the first film I saw of his. I, I saw this in theaters, actually. I did go to it uh, opening night, uh, widescreen opening, not like the limited release opening, but uh, the, the the first time it was open in, in my area. And I do remember coming out of it and just being like, like, like a, it was like a real head trip because honestly, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to remember now, but at the time Pulp Fiction came out, there were no other movies like that. You know, I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs yet, and Pulp Fiction, you know, it was it was funny and it was sexy and it was ultra violent in places and it had all this language in it. And then the time kept jumping around and you were like, wait, what's going on? So it was a little confusing. <laughs> and they just weren't making movies like that then. You know, now it's been copied to death. I mean, Quentin Tarantino really did sort of revolutionize this this kind of crime genre type thing. You know, but at the time I remember seeing it coming out of the theater and just being like, what did I just watch? But I loved it at the same time, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, we just talked about it a couple weeks ago with the, with the milkshakes last week, I think, with the, yeah, the $5 yeah, milkshake right, yeah. scene. Um, it's just got so many great scenes in it and it's so well acted and, and so many cool characters and just great moments. And again, quotable, you can quote the movie and I can't quote any of them here because I would, <laughs> they're yeah, a little inappropriate, yeah. but, um, yeah, it's, it's great. So Pulp Fiction is my number three. Uh, good pick. Uh, my number three is Leon or the professional or Leon, the professional. I had a feeling this would end up on your list. Yes. Uh, written and directed by Luc Besson. We also talked about it way, way back in episode two. Yeah, I remember that. Boy, we're hitting up a yeah. lot of the uh, the previous uh, after the endings here, huh? I know, yeah. And it stars Jean Reno, Gary Oldman, and it was Natalie Portman's motion picture debut. Yep. Uh, it's great. To, uh, Jean Reno was Leon, the ultimate assassin who likes a plant and drinking milk. 
and he's also the neighbour of Natalie Portman's family. Her family end up getting killed by a cop led by a group of cops led by Gary Oldman, and Leon ends up taking her in. A really well-made film, and this relationship between Leon and this this girl, and also you got Gary Oldman doing his one of his best performances of being an absolute insane psycho. Yeah. But without actually doing anything, which is too psycho, apart from shouting and taking in drugs. Right. Right. But yeah, but uh, I, I love the film. It's it's sometimes makes me cry as well at the end, and just because I think I like the relationship between the two of them. Yep, yep. Uh, it's a yeah, good film. That's my number three. Very good. I it, I will say it was on my short list. It almost made it. I do enjoy the film very much. It just it just got squeaked out of my list. But uh, but an excellent pick. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, I'm totally understandable because there are quite a few films this year. But uh, what's your number two? All right. Well, my number two, uh, as I hinted at earlier, is a film that's been on your list already, and it is The Crow, um, which is just uh, one of my favorite movies, and I, I love it so much. It holds up really well. And what I really love about it the most is it's a movie that will make it makes me cry every time I watch it because of this this romance and this friendship and this concept of this love that's so strong that it brings him back from the grave. Yet at the same time. It's this epic romance, and it's also one of the most kick-ass action movies like of the entire <laughs> decade. I mean, the action scenes in that movie are second to none. And Brandon Lee was so cool in that makeup, just taking out these bad guys one after the other in these really creative ways. You know, it's such a dark film, and it's so intense, but it also has this great romance in it. And I just, oh, I love it so much, and I love the comic that it's based on. And so, um, you know, it, this is a movie I've seen many times over the years, and it holds up every time I watch it. I still love it. I fall in love with it all over again and, and Brandon Lee was was fantastic and uh, he will be very much missed as we've mentioned in the past but if you if you haven't listened to episode 9 excuse me if you haven't listened to episode 11 yeah. uh, where we went after the endings go back and listen to that one it is an episode that I, I think we're both pretty proud of I think that was a that was a good one and it's fun to hear yeah. uh, Rochelle Davis from the from the movie talking about uh, her character so but that's my number two I love the crow and I knew it was going to be either my number one or number two pick for the year so uh, no big surprise there yeah a lovely pick and uh, okay well uh, my number two is The Shawshank Redemption. Hmm. Okay, Written interesting. by Frank Darabont, starring Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, adapted by, adapted from a Stephen King novella. Uh, you probably know what it is, but it's a guy who ends up going to prison, sentenced for life, and he just tries to make the best he can of being in prison, and he's uh, tormented by the prison guards, led by Clancy Brown. His friendship with, though, with uh, Morgan Freeman gets him through, uh, as do various posters and movie stars and a small... Little uh, geology hammer. Right. But uh, I remember watching it the first time when you realise what's gone on, you're blown away by it. And I still think it stands up watching it as well. I just the way it's all done, you know, it's the period piece and there's just the characters in the uh in the film are just amazing. Amazingly well some brilliant acting and you've got uh, Morgan Freeman doing his voiceover with his Morgan Freeman voice and doing it so well. And Tim Robbins just acts it brilliantly because at the beginning you just you you're never quite sure whether he did do it or not or whether he whether he meant to or and things like that he plays it very cool and cold to begin with but then we get to know him and then he uh then he has the redemption but that's uh that's my number two excellent pick i have to say i was very i was confused for a minute because i was thinking well if shawshank's your number two what could possibly be your number one but i think i have it figured out so i'll we'll leave that for a minute but i will say uh with very little preface my number one film for the year is the shawshank redemption um and for all the reasons you just said i don't really have yeah. a whole lot more to add to it than that it is it, it, a mind-blowingly amazing film for me and you know the fact that it's a drama um you know and and not 
you know, it's it's not supernatural, even though it's based on a Stephen King story. You know, it's just this story in this prison of this man and this friendship between, you know, him and, and Morgan Freeman and this, you know, this escape and uh, these guards and all this stuff. It's just, you know, I, I think it's amazing. And I cry every time I watch it. It's, yeah, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's to me, it's just a stunningly, stunningly good film. So um, that is my number one pick. Just fantastic film. Well, my my number one, as you've already mentioned it, is Pulp Fiction. I, I, one night I was like, "What movie could it be?" And then I looked back on my list. I was like, "Ah, it's got." If you haven't mentioned Pulp Fiction by now, it's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be up there. And, and, and to be honest, when I was doing the list, I know the, the past week I've been going. It's uh, number one, number two kept going, changing places. Right. But, uh, I'm going with I'm going with Pulp Fiction just because it's as you were saying in yours. It was just it was just different the way it was put together. Uh, you had the you had some of these actors who, like John Travolta, who hadn't been cool for very, for a while, suddenly being cool again. Uh, Uma Thurman being his perfect femme fatale. You got the whole pulp thing going on, and the whole story, different timelines, and just mixing it all together. Uh, just a supremely well made and well executed uh, screenplay and film. Ah, it's just brilliant. Agreed. Agreed. I love it. Yeah. Excellent choice. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up our top 10 films of 1994. As always, we would love to hear your picks or your thoughts on our picks. We'll tell you how to do that in just a little bit. In the meantime, uh, I think we can start to wrap things up. Phil, let's tell people what we're going to be talking about next week. Ho, ho, ho. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I'm sensing maybe there's a theme in next week's episode. Yes. Well, we thought we'd get our Christmas episode done. In time for you all to listen, because we're talking about Christmas films. You'll be watching Christmas films, so you might want to get those Christmas films out and watched. And you might hear us talking about Christmas films. Yes, we're going to be doing Christmas films. Uh, There you go. I wasn't sure if we were doing Christmas films or not, but then I I kind of picked up on it. So So we're going to be doing our top 10 Christmas movies of the 1990s, which could be interesting. Yeah, should be. Should be interesting. Uh, Probably a few good ones, but probably a whole lot of tat, to be honest. (laughs) Yep. Uh, but we'll also be going after the ending of Elf and It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, two of the most beloved Christmas movies of all time, I would say. Yes. It's a, yeah, It's a Wonderful Life. Where can we go with that one? I, you know, mm. I don't know. It's interesting. And actually, I've already uh, brought up It's a Wonderful Life in one of my After the Endings. When we did episode 25, the unendingable movies, after Melancholia, I had it where Clarence the Angel did, yeah, yeah, yeah. leads people through. So I'll have to come up with something completely different now for uh, – it's a wonderful life. I don't think that'll be too hard. So yeah, so that's a, should be a good one. Yeah, yeah, should be a lot of fun. So uh, so join us for that if you're in the Yuletide spirit, and if you're not, well, then bah humbug. <laughs> Sorry, I see what I did <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes. But yes, ho so, ho 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 ho. That should be a lot of fun. We are looking forward to that. We had a lot of fun with our Halloween episode. I think we'll have an equal amount of fun with our Christmas episode. So join us for that. Um, yeah. So get the eggnog ready if you're in America. If you're over here in the UK, you'll be going, what is eggnog? You guys don't have eggnog over there? No, not really, no. Oh, man, I'm like a heroin addict with the eggnog. Yeah, it's milk and cinnamon. Oh, no, it's so much more than that. I need need to try it because it's always in the American Christmas movies. But yeah, that's what we'll be doing next week. So tune in because it's going to be a good one. Indeed it is. All right. Well, as usual, if you would like to reach out to us, Phil, they can do that through our social media channels, correct? Yes, you can reach us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. And facebook.com 
slash after the ending podcast. Uh, and don't forget our contest. You can uh, you can decide the future of the show. You can uh, pick a movie for us to talk about. Simply go to iTunes, leave us a review, take a screen cap of the review, and email it to us at after the ending at verizon.net. We're going to choose two winners, so we're going to run the contest at the end of the year. So get that into us, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing those. You can help support the show, and you can win a chance to hear us talk about any ridiculous movie that you would like. All right, then. Well, in that case, uh, we will uh, leave it there for now. As always, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. I'm up for that, yeah. The more we get, the more... All right, well, uh, so the day after, in in, in London... So the day after, so... mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep saying the same thing over and over again, apparently. It's like a groundhog day, Presti. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, well, uh, I want to see what happens, so don't hold, hold me in suspense. She talked to Adam. Uh, I don't know what the heck that is. W-H. I wrote something in it. I can't tell, but it looks like I'm going to type it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do that all the time. Yeah. Vince Barron and Voltan think them. No, Vince Barron and Voltan think them for – think them. I said it twice. All right. Well, thank you to all of them for uh, letting me talk to them, and uh, that was a pretty cool experience, so – uh, no, no, sir. Sorry, no. Uh, that yep. was excellent. Thanks, Phil. Yeah. Thanks for that that witty and yep. insightful comment. Yep. yep. No, no, I made up. You got a chance to talk to them all. It was uh, good interviews there. Very cool. Thank you. All right. Yep. 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 <laughs> that was 1994. All right. Excellent. So I probably shouldn't say excellent after you name all the people who just no. died. Uh, my number eight is. Uh, 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 I don't know why I couldn't just say it. Apparently. <laughs> Yeah, go on to go on to the podcast platform you like and search after the ending, and you'll probably find it. But if we're not there, go on to one where we are. <laughs> <laughs>